Hi everyone, I'm Graham Smith and welcome to this episode of the Abolish the Monarchy podcast brought to you by Republic. Today I'm talking to Professor Jenny Hocking of Monash University in Melbourne, who is also the Distinguished Whitlam Fellow at the Whitlam Institute at the University of West Sydney. For the past few years, Jenny has been fighting a legal action against the Australian government to secure the release of letters sent between the then Governor-General John Kerr and the Queen. Jenny, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? Hi, Graham. I'm I'm very well, and thank you very much for having me on your inaugural podcast. I'm I'm very pleased to be here. Excellent. So, thank you for joining us. And um, I mean, can you just briefly tell us about these letters? I mean, what's their significance that you've uh, you felt the need to fight so uh, for so long to get them released? Well, the letters are extraordinarily significant historical documents. They're letters, as you said, written between the Australian Governor General, who is the Queen's representative in Australia. And the Queen, and they were written at the time at which our Governor-General was considering taking the step he then did take, which was the unprecedented action to dismiss from office the Australian Prime Minister, Gough Whitlam. Whitlam had been elected in 1972, had then been re-elected in 1974 and it was dismissed by the Governor-General only 18 months after that. So this was a controversial action. It, it, it was one in which uh, a great deal of the activities that were taking place behind the scenes by the Governor-General were not revealed to the Australian public until sometimes decades later. And so the fact that these letters between the Queen and the Governor-General at the time of the dismissal have been kept secret from us, I think adds adds to the sense of urgency about, about, about the desire for access. So uh, they are important, they are critical historical documents. And the other point to make is that these letters are actually held by our own National Archives. The National Archives of Australia holds these letters between the Queen and the Governor-General. And yet the Australian people cannot see them because they have been embargoed by the Queen. So this entire um, situation uh, is really what's driven me to, to take the court action. It's been the only way to try and access these letters. And the case now is into its fourth year and we will have the final decision from the High Court of Australia um, expected really within the next few weeks. And just pick you up on one point here. I mean, it is, it is the Queen that has embargoed these letters, is it? Not uh, the British government or the Australian government. It, it is the, the palace that has made this decision not to have them released. That's right. Uh, it's, it's an extraordinary situation where the letters between a Governor-General and the Queen, which are the two positions at the apex of a constitutional monarchy, have been nevertheless deemed to be personal letters. Now, that's a very important label because if the letters were recognised as what are called Commonwealth records, that is, more official documents, um, they come under our Archives Act. And under our Archives Act, they would have to be released after 30 years because that's was then the open access provision the time period. Mm. But they cannot be open for public access because they are described as personal. And as personal records, and it's very hard to understand how letters between a Queen and a Governor-General, particularly at a time of great political yep. uh, moment, as, as, as the dismissal of a government, uh, could in any way be seen as personal. Uh, but nevertheless, they are described as personal, and so they have their own conditions placed upon them. Now, the interesting fact is that the conditions that were put on those letters during the Governor-General's own lifetime 
specified that they weren't to be released for 60 years and only then after consultation, and that's an important word, after consultation with the Queen's Private Secretary and the Australian Governor-General's Official Secretary. Now, those conditions were changed and they were changed apparently on the instructions of the Queen. And interestingly, given that these are meant to be personal records, personal to the Governor-General, those conditions were changed after the Governor-General had died. And it's those change conditions that now give the Queen herself a final potential embargo because it now requires the, the approval of the Queen's private secretary for those letters to be released. So there's a lot of questions remaining about uh, the conditions of access over these letters and how the Queen's embargo was placed over them after the death of the Governor-General. And when you say they're Commonwealth documents, we're talking about the Commonwealth of Australia rather than the Commonwealth that people in the UK would recognise. Yeah. That's right. The two possibilities are that, that the letters are either Commonwealth records, which is as we have argued in the court, yeah. or as the National Archives argue, and as, of course, the Palace and Government House here argue, is that they are personal records, in which case they are personal to the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr, and they remain personal to the Kerr family and they retain the ultimate control over them. And has the Kerr family um, uh, sort of waded into this themselves? Have they said that whether or not they should be uh, released? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, initially, that that just to confuse everything, there is actually a, a copy of the, of the palace letters also in the National Archives, which I had originally also sought access to. They had their own terms and, and conditions, which clearly indicated that the Kerr family wanted them released after 30 years. And indeed, what's interesting is that Sir John Kerr himself made it absolutely clear that he wanted the letters to be made public. Uh, he, he understood that there was to be um, a time period before they would be uh, open to the public, but he believed that ought to have been 30 years. And he believed that because he wanted the letters open during the lifetime of his children. He believed that the letters would validate his decision to dismiss the Australian mm -hmm. elected government. And so he himself, this is another quirk of this, this whole case, is that Kerr himself recognised the historical importance of the letters. He, he believed that they should be available for historians and scholars to look at as an important part of our history. It is the palace and it is government house in Australia that is maintaining this strict embargo over the letters. And indeed, um, we now also have a similar embargo over the copy of the letters. So none of them are available to the Australian public. And um, so, I mean, I mean, this is all quite extraordinary, I think, to most people's ears that we have letters which are deemed personal, not the personal property of the Queen, but the personal property of uh, John Kerr um, and his family now that he's uh, died. And the family and John Kerr himself wanted them released, um, but it's the Queen that is saying no on the grounds that they are these personal letters. Um, well, I think the family would now um, and has since uh, accepted that uh, the letters uh, should, they argue, now come under. They, they changed their view on this um, at some point during the case and accepted and changed the terms of condition over the copies um, and, and accepted that they would now be, cl be closed until at least 50 years from the date at which they began, which makes it 2027 at the very earliest. So um, there's been some shifting around that as the case has continued. I mean, it's curious that 
official, I mean, these are essentially official letters between uh, two officers of state within the Australian Constitution, the Governor-General and the Monarch. Um, I mean, how did they become the personal property of uh, a former Governor-General? Wouldn't they have always been deemed to be official documentation that would have retained, been retained by the, uh, by the state? Well, this is really the nub of our court case. Um, we've argued, of course, that the letters uh, are clearly Commonwealth records, that they ought to be acknowledged um, as... Uh, and it's been acknowledged, in fact, in the uh, what are called the agreed facts of the case, that the topics under discussion between the Governor-General and the Queen include... Um, the, the, the duties and the functions and the carrying out of the duties and the functions of the Governor-General. In other words, topics relating yep. to uh, a Governor-General's um, actions as Governor-General. Kerr mm. himself described the letters as and writing the letters as part of his duty as Governor-General, mm. um, <coughs> that he was providing reports to the Queen in that way, which he saw as part of his work as Governor-General. So... Yes, in a common sense way, it's very difficult to see how the description of personal can attach mm. to them. But nevertheless, because they have been described as personal and because the National Archives of Australia has accepted that designation, uh, it has necessitated taking a court case, a Federal Court of Australia case, and subsequently a High Court of Australia appeal to to determine whether, in fact, the letters are Commonwealth records or whether they are indeed personal. Uh, the, the, these are letters to and from the Queen, so they're, they're letters written by both parties, are they? Well, the, the, the letters are our, our side of the correspondence between uh, the Queen and the Governor-General. That is, they are the contemporaneously made um, copy of the Governor-General's letters to the Queen, and they're the originals of the Queen's replies to the Governor-General. Of course, the other side of that correspondence, that is the original of our Governor-General's letters to the Queen and copies of the Queen's response to him, will be with the Royal Archives um, in England. But but it is a complete set of royal correspondence and herein lies their great historical significance for Australia uh, because they go for the entirety of our Governor-General's term in office, which was mid-1974 through to late 1977. The great bulk of the letters, though, were written during the period in which there was a political crisis in Australia over the granting of supply or the money bills to the Labor government of, of Gough Whitlam. He did not have a majority uh, for much of the time in the Senate, which is our upper house, and the upper house had uh, refused to pass the, the money bills at that mm. time. Um, so so as, as the country... Uh, uh, sought to deal with this and and the Prime Minister decided that in order to end that deadlock he would call what was called a half-cent election which is an election for half of our upper house. He was instead dismissed right at the moment at which he mm. was um, calling that, that, that half-cent election. So it's an extremely controversial episode and there's a huge mm. question over how much the palace was informed prior to Kerr taking that extraordinary step and you know, I think there's very few people now in Australia who would accept that what the Governor-General did was um, was appropriate at that time, largely because he did this without warning the Prime Minister. He gave the Prime Minister no warning at all that he was to remove him. He gave him no option to remain in office as Prime Minister if he moved to an election for both Houses of Parliament. He simply peremptorily dismissed him from office and placed 
instead, in his place, the leader of the opposition who did not have a majority in the House of Representatives. So it's an extraordinary decision and one in which you could imagine the palace would have needed to have been at least aware of uh, prior to the Governor-General taking that action. So these are all things that would be revealed and understood better mm. if we had access to the palace letters. And let's go back to the, you know what was going on at the time, because there was an interesting point that you made in the introduction to your um, book, the dismissal dossier, where you were saying that the, to understand it, you really have to look at the the years preceding it rather than just that moment in terms of the the, the refusal to, uh, to uh, pass the budget in the Senate. So that it, it's the the um, return of a Labour government after however many years it was in opposition and then uh, various things which were going on um, leading up to the dismissal. I mean, can you give us some background as to exactly what was going on in Australian politics and why it ended up um, uh, in this situation? Well, I always say that the dismissal was really the end point of the election of the Whitlam government itself and the response to that election from conservative forces. And the reason for that is that we had had in Australia a conservative government, which is a coalition government in Australia of Liberal and what was then the country party, and we have a conservative coalition government again at the moment. So, you know, it's a long-standing political um political party which actually or collection which actually began um in the in the 1940s but had been in office uh, for 23 years 23 unbroken years of conservative government so coming into the change of government in 1972 it's it's important to recognize what an upheaval that was to those that had been in power for so long but also to the institutions of governance, which had never had to deal with a Labor government so and had never had Labor ministers, had never had to deal with a Labor caucus, had never understood the Labor caucus system, which is an unusual one. Um, uh, and, and so there was a great deal of consternation. But, on, on, but, but the Australian people had voted for change, had voted for a really very strong reformist program of change, which did things such as introduced a universal health system, which we have to this very day and for which at the moment in particular we're extremely grateful for, which is Medicare, um, introduced free tertiary education, introduced a national legal aid system, lowered the voting age to 18, brought back Australian troops from Vietnam, uh, released um, uh, uh, conscientious objectors for prison who'd refused to go and fight in Vietnam. It was an extremely uh, strongly reformist Labor government. And there was a great deal of, 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 of concern among conservative circles that this was moving too fast, that the Australian um, political and cultural landscape was changing too quickly. And the really dis disturbing thing, I think, is to look back at the response of what was then an opposition coalition and to see the way in which they refused to accept the legitimacy of the elected Whitlam Labor government. Uh, and very quickly, um, uh, Liberal members and, and coalition members in the Senate were saying that they would use their numbers in the Senate to bring down the newly elected government. So it's extraordinary to look back at those early months of the new Whitlam Labor government and to recognise that its legitimacy was challenged and that the means through which it could be challenged was recognised as the Senate, the upper house. 
which did have a majority um, of conservative forces uh, for the re complicated reason in Australia, which we only have usually half Senate elections at any one time. And so there's a lag in the electoral sort of makeup of the Senate. Now, to, to get around that obstruction, because there was significant upper house obstruction of the of the Labor government's uh, electoral platform over the next 18 months, the, Whitlam called a second election in May 1974. And that was an election, a full election for both Houses of Parliament. And the Whitlam Labor government was returned at that election. It was a historic election, which was the first time that a Labor leader had been twice elected uh, consecutive electoral victories. And so there was a very strong repeat mandate in mid-1974. And yet the coalition forces and conservative forces only continued to obstruct and continue to deny the legitimacy of it. So the obstruction of the Senate, uh, of, of, of our, of our uh, money bills, the supply bills, the budget bills, the following year was something that many people had anticipated. Um, and it, it was the end point of what had been an effort to, to I suppose, bring down the first Labor government for 23 years. And the, the, um, the election in 1974 was a double dissolution election, is that correct? So the whole of the Senate went to the polls? That's right. It was a, a full Senate election and a full House of Representatives election. And uh, the incumbent Labor government actually picked up uh, three Senate seats in that and both the coalition and, and or the opposition, I should say, and the Labor Party were returned with equal numbers in the Senate. Right. And there was a key point here, isn't there, to do with the governor, uh, was it the Queensland, a Queensland senator? being replaced at some point? There were two key points, actually. There, there mm. were two Labor senators who, some time after that election, one, one was appointed to the High Court of Australia. That was Justice Lionel Murphy, who, who had previously been the Labor Attorney-General under Whitlam. That created a vacancy in New South Wales. And really, the die was cast when the New South Wales government refused to replace uh, the Labor uh, senator with someone from the Labor Party's choice. Normally, up until that point, there was a convention that if if a sitting uh, senator moved, either was uh, re resigned and took up another position or died in office or retired, uh, they were replaced by somebody from the nomination of the same party. Now, uh, although this was not done in New South Wales at that time, the, the newly appointed senator uh, announced that he would support the Labor Party on matters of supply. So that was, in one level, uh, it did not change the numbers. But what it did was create a precedent where uh, when a Queensland Labor senator then died, uh, the Queensland Conservative government not only appointed someone who was not of the Labor Party's choosing, but appointed someone who was so diametrically opposed to the Labor Party that he announced that he was going to Canberra with one intention only, and that was to bring down the Whitlam Labor government. And he was able to do that in effect because mm. that additional vote um, uh, for the Conservatives, or more importantly, the absence of a vote for the uh, Labor government in the Senate, is what enabled the opposition to stall a vote on supply. It has to be remembered that the supply bills were never actually rejected. Mm -hmm. They were repeatedly uh, uh, returned to the House with a demand that the government return uh, 
uh, uh, uh, face another election, the third in three years, <laughs> for the House of Representatives. And, of course, the government was not going to do that. The government was always going to call a House Senate election. It was an election that was due at that time. It was the only election, really, that they, that they could call. And that's what they were about to do on the 11th of November 1975 when the Prime Minister was dismissed by the Governor-General. And speaking of the Governor-General, I mean, can you tell us a bit about John Kerr? I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, that he had a Labour background, is that correct? Yes, it's often said he had a Labour background, but the Labour, the Labour Party had had a massive split in the mid-1950s. And it's strange how these things play through for so many decades later. Uh, the split in the in the Labour Party, which is Labour Party, that actually had three great splits. They were great splitters, but but uh, <laughs> in the mid fifties, in nineteen fifty four, there was probably the most significant and lastingly uh, damaging split in the Labour Party, um, and the 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 largely Catholic right, but not entirely Catholic, but 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 certainly those that were extremely anti communist and felt that the Labour Party had moved too strongly to the left. Um, left the party and formed um, a splinter group, which eventually became known as the Democratic Labor Party. Mm. Now, Kerr had been a member of the Labor Party prior to the split, but most importantly, he left the party after that split. Um, and in fact, he appeared repeatedly in various legal cases for um, effectively for the splinter grouping against Labor Party union um, members in a series of industrial cases that were very important in the 1950s. Mm. So by the 1950s and 60s, Kerr was becoming a judicial figure. His politics were behind him. But um, it's interesting to know, it's, it's very rarely commented on, but he was actually um, in one of the very early meetings of the Democratic Labor Party, which was um, at that point determining its new leader, and that was the a very powerful and successful splinter group of the Labor Party that um, kept the Labor Party out of office effectively through its votes um, for the next 23 years. So Kerr was no friend of the unreformed, as he called it, unreformed Labor Party. Um, And I don't suggest that that had any real impact on his work as Governor-General. I think it's clear that by then he had moved out of political um, circles and into a very strong judicial circle. He was a respected um, lawyer, respected judge by that point. He was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of New South Wales. And I think Whitlam appointed him believing, well, firstly, that he was proper and up understood uh, uh, the requirements of a Governor-General at the very least mm. to speak to his Prime Minister and to uh, discuss matters with his Prime Minister, which unfortunately Kerr did not. But I think he also, Whitlam also had one eye to looking for a Conservative figure of whom there could be no criticism and he felt that Kerr was such an established figure by then that he was, a, as I said, the Chief right. Justice of New South Wales, that he was a safe, a safe pair of hands. <laughs> yeah, perhaps not as safe as he thought, but uh, I... <laughs> uh, Whitlam I, later said it was his only political error. What can you say about John Kerr's sort of uh, motivation? I mean, was he was he also looking more favourably on the Liberal opposition that wanting to destabilise this, or was he legitimately and sincerely thinking that this was what he had to do? I mean, was there... I mean, we're talking about, you know, he was... 
uh, as I understand it, he said at the time that he uh, left the Queen out of it right until the last minute, but these letters suggest that that's not quite the case and that there was discussion of dismissing the government sometime before it happened. So, I mean, is there a connection between the Liberal opposition attempts to destabilise the government and, and the actions of, Gough, of uh, John Kerr? Look, in the sense that there was enormous pressure on Kerr, um, it was impossible to separate out that destabilisation of the government from the action that Kerr then took. I think the really shocking part and the very concerning part of what Kerr did is that he simply failed to speak to the Prime Minister. Now, this is inconceivable. A Governor-General is, is, an, is, an, is an appointed position. There is no mandate, no electoral mandate, no um, no democratic uh, aspect in that position. And the Governor-General takes the advice of the elected government. I mean, it would be as horrific as the Queen turning round and saying, I am not going to speak to the elected government of Boris Johnson because I can't speak to them. Um, it's all too complicated at the moment, but I'm going to, to appoint the leader of the opposition um, to take the helm of government when the, that, mm. that opposition has just lost the government uh, at the last election. It was an extraordinary decision for any Governor-General to take against an elected government so long as that government retained the confidence of the House of Representatives as the Whitlam government did. So for Kerr to, to and he has written about this uh, publicly, he makes no, 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 no bones about it, he decided what, on what he calls a policy of silence to the Prime Minister. Now, now this is absolutely preposterous because the mm. Governor-General has to act on the advice of the Prime Minister. Now, for Kerr to let Whitlam believe that he was to call the half-Senate election, and the evidence I have found in the archive shows very clearly that the paperwork for the half-Senate election was exchanged between Government House and the Prime Minister's office for five days prior to the dismissal and Whitlam went out to Government House on the morning, on, on the afternoon of the 11th of November, believing that they were finalising the plans for the half-Senate election. That's why Whitlam always described it as an ambush, because Kerr simply led him to believe the half-Senate election would be called as it should have been. And Whitlam had no sense whatsoever that instead he was simply going to be dismissed before that election could be called. Hmm. And there was, I mean, constitutionally, I mean, he, ha he obviously has the power to, to dismiss the Prime Minister, but obviously I, I would assume that there would, there would be conventions and understandings about the, the context in which that might happen. I mean, was there, was there some kind of, um, I mean, was it strictly unconstitutional or was it an abuse? I mean, does the Constitution spell out uh, these powers that the Governor-General used? Well, I think that's that's very much a live issue. I mean, it was never tested in court. And I think one of the great difficulties with our constitution, I think in many ways it's a wonderful constitution, mm. um, but I think one of the difficulties, and this will be the case with any written constitution, is that what is not said in the constitution is just as important as what is in it. The constitution makes no mention of a, of a prime minister. It makes no mention mm. of, um, of political parties. It... It, it gives the Governor-General, if it is looked at on as a black-letter technical 
legal document only, it actually makes the Governor-General completely supreme. The Governor-General technically, of course, appoints mm. ministers and appoints ministries, but the Governor-General acts on the advice of what's called in the Constitution of the Executive Council mm. and his uh, uh, Executive councillors, and they in turn uh, form uh, are members of the Parliament. So um, it's very difficult to see how a Governor-General could remove a government without speaking to that government in mm. the first instance and without seeking that government's advice. And, and that is the great criticism, even among his, his, his dwindling band of supporters, it is the great criticism of Sir John mm. Kerr that he failed to warn the Prime Minister and he failed to take the Prime Minister's advice. And I mean, I, I guess the analogy with the UK is that, you know, technically the, um, the monarch is... Uh, supreme and and has all this uh, power and it's her government, her Majesty's government and her ministers. But you know the convention is so well embedded that it would be deemed unconstitutional for her to exercise that power in contravention of the uh, prime minister's advice. And she certainly wouldn't be um, looking to dismiss anybody, um, not least because it would bring the monarchy down. So I mean, I, you know, that convention I would assume would ought to have hold, held in in Australia as well. If it's not written down, then the convention would be um, that the you know the, the, the governor general's position is akin to the, that of the monarch. Is that correct? Absolutely, and the governor general is the queen's representative in Australia. It's very interesting to look at what happened after the dismissal of the government because I think it brings uh, very clearly to light um, uh, the way in which the normal processes were so completely abused by the governor general. And that is that our Westminster system, and we have a Westminster system obviously built uh, and following the British Westminster system, is that ordinarily, of course, uh, the party or the political parties that form a majority and have the confidence of the House of Representatives, or in your case, the House of Commons, will 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 be will be the government will form the government. Now, what happened in 1975 after the the dismissal of the Whitlam Labor government was that Whitlam always believed, and I found this when I was doing his biography. I found it very difficult to actually understand how he could possibly have believed this but it was verified by several people to me at the time and it makes complete sense because Whitlam believed in the parliamentary institutions more than anything he was a great mm. parliamentarian and a great believer in the Westminster system he believed that he would be back in office that afternoon and the mm. reason he believed it is because the parliament was still sitting and after the luncheon adjournment he went back into the Parliament, as they all did, and back into the House of Representatives, and he drew up a motion which was expressing a, what, what was called a want of confidence, a lack of confidence in the appointed government led by the opposition leader, well, the former opposition leader, the appointed Prime Minister, Malcolm Fraser, and calling on the Governor-General to reinstate the Whitlam government and restating its confidence, the House of Representatives' confidence in a government-led by Gough Whitlam. So he believed that having received that motion from the House of Representatives, a motion of confidence in the Whitlam government and no confidence in the appointed Fraser government, that the Governor-General would have to at that point reinstate the Whitlam Labor government. And during that period, the, the Senate had also met and had passed supply. So he completely believed that he would be back in office, the supply bills had been passed, 
life would go on. Now, what the Governor-General did next is what I think is in many ways even more shocking than the dismissal itself. I call that the second dismissal. Kerr dismissed the entire parliament. He refused to see the Speaker of the House. He refused to accept the motion of no confidence. And we have to remember that a motion of no confidence is the single most important motion a House of Representatives or a House of Commons can ever pass. That's the motion that determines government. That's the motion that determines which party will for, or parties will form government. Governments aren't determined on the whim of a Governor-General or the whim of the Queen. They're determined through the House. And yet our Governor-General at that moment said that the motion of no confidence was irrelevant and he left in place the government that he had appointed on his decision against the wishes of the House of Representatives. And that is quite, I mean, putting it like that, that is quite shocking. I think this is one of the things which I didn't realise until uh, I heard you speak on this issue, is the this second dismissal, which, I mean, the, you know, it is a, as you said, it's a basic principle of parliamentary democracy or constitutional monarchy that the head of state has to appoint as prime minister the person who holds the confidence of the lower house. I mean, that is, you know, and if that confidence had been proven again immediately after the dismissal, uh, was still was still in play. The House was still sitting. So to refuse to to recognise the Speaker is an extraordinary decision. It's a deeply distressing decision for those who care about the institutions of parliamentary governance, as as I do, and as of course Whitlam did, and as I think most people do. But the sh- the, the the really appalling nature of what happened in, on that day is far more than the than the decision of, of, to dismiss the government itself. And so much of this, the reason, Graham, so much of this has come out more recently and continues to come out, is for the simple and equally shocking reason that so much of it was kept secret, kept secret at the time and kept secret from the Australian people and our history for decades since. And we are still trying to get to the bottom of what actually happened, who was told, who knew what. And part of that is these palace letters that have been kept secret and locked away in our national archives under the Queen's embargo. And these letters, going back to these letters, I mean, these dated back for a number of months prior to the dismissal, is that correct? Yeah. Look, when I first uh, sought access to them, and I sought access to them when I first started researching Gough Whitlam's biography in 2000 and 2007, 8, 9. I was looking uh, right through what are Sir John Kerr's papers that are located in the, uh, in the National Archives of Australia. And among the, the, the files there that were closed and simply said not Commonwealth records, not, not available, what were the palace letters? So I was told uh, back in the uh, 2011, uh, 2009, that I could not look at these letters, that they weren't open, they weren't accessible through the catalogue, um, but I knew they were there <laughs> and I knew how significant they might they must be. There was no secret that Kerr was writing to the palace at this time. He writes about this proudly in his uh, in his autobiography, Matters for Judgment. He was very proud of his what he saw as a close relationship to the Queen and the palace. So he says there that as a matter of duty and part of his responsibilities of office, he was in regular contact with the Queen uh, through her private secretary. And he describes a little bit about the sorts of things he was he was writing, but he says no more than that. So we knew that the letters were there, um, but but we, we, we were unable to access them. And they actually go back, as I said, through the entirety of Kerr's period in office, which ended in 77, 1977. However, the most 
important part of them, I believe, um, will be probably from around August 1975 right through until some months after the dismissal um, to see what Kerr was saying to the palace at that time. We know, we know from the court case a great deal more about the letters because this has come out during proceedings. We know that Kerr was writing frequently to the palace during that time from August to late 1975. He was sometimes sending four or even five letters in a single day. So this is quite quite an extraordinary holding. It's also very bizarre behaviour on the part of the Governor-General, I have to say. And you can see from his private papers that he becomes utterly obsessed about his dismissal of the Whitlam government. And he's absolutely determined to let the palace know almost as if, as if he's telling on the government, you know, this rep reporting back on conversations he's had with the Prime Minister um, and his commentaries on that and expressing his concern about the direction things are going in, particularly when you remember that he's decided he will not speak to the Prime Minister about these very matters. I mean, this raises some interesting points about the Queen's role because, I mean, as well as having a and a representative of the Queen and the Governor-General in Australia, the Prime Minister must have a direct relationship with the palace back in London. Um, and the Queen, certainly here, it's always said that her role is to advise and warn the Prime Minister. I mean, if uh, assuming that's the same, uh, the case in Australia, I mean, you would think that she would be advising and warning the Prime Minister of what the Governor-General is up to. Well, that's, that's one of the very interesting questions I think we need to know from the letters whether at any point she did say to, to our Governor-General, have you spoken to your Prime Minister about these matters? You know, what is your Prime Minister's advice? You know, these are absolutely critical questions that we can't possibly answer, that we can't know, know the details of, until and unless we can see these letters. So the letters are not only vital historical documents in terms of our, the dismissal of an Australian government from office, but they are also vital letters in showing all of us, I think, all of the Commonwealth nations, the sorts of decision-making that goes on between the, the, the very apex of, of, of a constitutional monarchy. What are the sorts of things that are discussed between a governor or a governor-general and the Queen? I, I, I think as a fascinating documentation of that, these letters are, are exceptional. You're, you're not going to find another another set of records that will really open up that area to us as, as, as much as these letters will. Mm. Now, running out of time, so um, I guess my my question is what's going to happen next? I mean, are you optimistic um, or, I mean, is it just too hard to know what's going to happen uh, when this court case comes to a conclusion? Oh, look, it's extremely difficult to know, Graham. Obviously, I believe yep. we have a very, very strong case that the letters ought to be recognised as Commonwealth records and therefore available to the Australian people. But we've had a long, a long road through the court process, which I have to say has been absolutely fascinating. And I must say how grateful I am to to my legal team that has worked pro bono through the mm. entire case. It could not have happened without them. And also to all of the crowdfunding supporters, I've uh, this entire case has run through 
crowdfunding. I, I, I have a campaign called Release the Palace Letters. If there's any listeners yep. there that would still like to <laughs> donate, it would be absolutely wonderful. But but it's it's extraordinary for a crowdfunder campaign with pro bono legal advice to come this far. We, we mm. began in the federal court. We were not successful. We then appealed to the full federal court and in a split decision, um, uh, we, we were again not successful, but we did succeed in having special leave to appeal to the High Court of Australia. So we had the great privilege of the, the full bench, all seven of the Australian mm. High Court judges heard our case arguing uh, that the palace letters ought to be recognised as, as Commonwealth records and ought to be released to the Australian public. So we, we should know the outcome of that over the next few weeks. And I must say, I find it extremely um, appropriate that the decision on the nature of these letters between the Governor-General and the Queen will now be made by an Australian court, an Australia, the mm-hmm. Australian highest court, and not by the Queen. And I think that's a very good thing. Yeah, and, and I would, you know, I think my hat off to you for, for making that happen. I think that's a fantastic result, even if they come down with what I would assume would be the wrong the wrong decision. My, my, I mean, if, if the legal decision goes the wrong way, I mean, is there then a political decision to be made by a future Labour government to um, to release these letters? I, I think that's quite um, quite possible. It, it 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 is open to any government to advise the Queen that that the letters are key historical documents. That sufficient time has passed that really uh, they ought to be opened and the Queen's embargo mm. ought to be lifted. Um, our previous Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull did. Uh, publicly state that he would do that, uh, even though he was a Conservative, he was probably best known as the leader of the Australian Republican movement at the time of our um, referendum on Republic, which did not succeed. But he was always of the view that they ought to be open. Now, unfortunately, we're none the wiser as to whether he actually did that because he then stated that his communications with the Queen had to be kept confidential. And so we still got a way to go to trying to release the letter should we not succeed. But I'm very hopeful that the full full bench of the High Court will find in our favour and that the letters will finally uh, as Sir John Kerr himself wanted, be released for historians and the Australian public to see and to know their own history. Absolutely. And I think oh, that's an excellent point to finish on. So thank you so much for your time, Jenny. And um, again, fantastic work that you've been pursuing uh, for so long. And I think it will have huge repercussions here as well if those letters are released and if they are as revealing as we uh, uh, think they might be. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Graham, for having me, and uh, good luck with all your work with Republic UK. Thank you very much. So uh, thank you for listening, and uh, remember you can find more uh, podcast episodes uh, via our website or on the Apple uh, podcast app. Um, You can also find out more about Republic uh, at republic.org.uk. And uh, if you're interested in this issue, there's plenty uh, written. I know there's some articles by Jenny Hocking, online but there's an excellent book called the dismissal dossier um, uh, which summarizes uh, or explores a lot of this in in more detail so i'm sure you can probably find that online somewhere Um, and uh, yeah thank you very much for listening and if you do want to support the campaign go to republic.org.uk where you can find out uh, how you can do that whether by joining donating or getting involved